Hello, everyone, and welcome back to SALT Talks. My name is John Darcy. I'm the Managing Director of SALT, which is a global thought leadership forum and networking platform at the intersection of finance, technology, and public policy. SALT Talks are a digital interview series with leading investors, creators, and thinkers. Our goal on SALT Talks is the same as our goal at our SALT Conference series, which our guest today has spoken at, I believe, uh, in 2015 but it's to provide a window into the mind of subject matter experts, as well as provide a platform for what we think are big ideas that are shaping the future. And we're very excited today to welcome Jake Wood to Salt Talks. Jake Wood is the co-founder and chief executive officer of Team Rubicon, a nonprofit organization that utilizes the skills of military veterans to deploy disaster response teams to a variety of different uh, humanitarian crises. Under Wood's leadership, Team Rubicon has launched over 650 operations in response to natural disasters and humanitarian crises since the 2010 Haiti earthquake and has grown from eight people to 120,000 members. Team Rubicon has finished in the top three of the nonprofit times, top nonprofit to work for in America list three years in a row. Wood is a leading veterans advocate who was briefed, uh, who briefed President Obama on veterans issues met with former Presidents Bush and Clinton on disaster response, as well as has testified before Congress. As a sergeant in the U.S. Marine Corps, uh, Wood was deployed to Iraq and Afghanistan as a scout sniper and earned the Navy Marine Commendation Medal. Uh, hosting today's talk is Anthony Scaramucci, the founder and managing partner of Skybridge Capital, a global alternative investment firm. Anthony's also the chairman of SALT. And with that, I'll turn it over to Anthony and Jake for the interview. Thanks, John. John, thank you, Jake. It was great to have you at the SALT Conference. I'm hoping and praying that we can get you back to a SALT Conference someday. We can end this virtual uh, situation. Let's make it happen. Uh, we're going to make it happen. Uh, we're, uh, John's uh, going to make an announcement here shortly about where he wants to put the SALT Conference. So um, I just want to comment on everybody's wardrobe, okay? We, we know who the poorest person is on the podcast because I'm wearing the tie and these other two millennials, I mean, they're dressed like billionaires. So we're going to leave it at that, Jake. You don't have to respond to it. I just needed to make that editorial statement. Uh, but first off, I want to thank you for your service. Uh, you're an amazing American. I followed your career, obviously, since you came to SALT. And I've listened to many of your interviews. Um, but for people that don't know Team Rubicon, Jake, or you, uh, and John did a very good introduction of who you are. Tell us about Team Rubicon. What is Team Rubicon. Yeah, so Team Rubicon, or TR like we refer to it, is a, a nonprofit organization like John mentioned. And what we do is we recruit, train, and deploy military veterans for disaster response and humanitarian, working humanitarian crises. And the concept is actually really simple. The U.S. spends you know, tens of billions, hundreds of billions of dollars a year training uh, American citizens uh, on the latest technology, the best equipment. They are given them these in, you know, incredible skill sets. And over the last two decades, these men and women have been deployed all around the world in some of the most austere environments and complex situations on the planet. And our concept is that uh, we can build a better mousetrap when it comes to fighting the, the rising cost and impact of, of climate change and the increasing frequency of, of disasters by recruiting these men and women to repurpose their skills uh, to, uh, to respond to them. So we've done that at scale over the last decade. Uh, we've recruited nearly 150,000 uh, military veterans into doing the work that we, we do. We've responded to over 750 communities impacted by 
disasters and crises ranging from tornadoes and hurricanes and floods to things like civil wars and plagues. And of course, over the last 12 months, our work has been focused on uh, assisting with uh, responses to COVID-19. Your, your name, okay, the Rubicon was a river that Julius Caesar crossed and it was an inflection point, which meant the end of the Republic. And so <clears throat> that was the beginning of the dictatorship and the end of the triumvirate that was holding the Republic together. Why'd you call Team Rubicon? Well, let, let's not invoke phrases like the end of the Republic, uh, <laughs> given recent events. But yet, you know, the name was no accident. When the organization was founded, it was not founded with the intent of starting you know, a global humanitarian organization. I had just gotten out of the Marine Corps in late 2009. I'd been out for maybe 60 days. In January 2010, the Haiti earthquake hit. And, you know, I was watching that situation unfold. It was, a, it was the worst humanitarian catastrophe of the 21st century. And seeing all the chaos and the destruction, it really just looked pretty familiar to me. I just gotten done with two really hard combat tours in Iraq and Afghanistan. I called up a couple of organizations, offered my services. They all understandably said no. And so I, I organized a team of veterans and some doctors to go down to, to Haiti. But you have to understand, like, we didn't know how we were going to be able to do that. And so there were all these obstacles and challenges in the way of us being able to do that. But we knew that if we could get to the border, the Haitian-Dominican border, and get across, that that would be our Rubicon, that that would be our point of no return. And so we flew to the Dominican. We made our way to the border. We crossed the border about four days after the earthquake and made our way into Port-au-Prince. And so we, we referred to the team, and it was just a small team at the time, eight people, just we referred to them as, as Team Rubicon. Oh, well, I didn't want to invoke the end of the Republic. You know, I'm not <laughs> miss about America. Too soon, too and, soon. Uh, you know, and I have a tendency to be very shy and introverted related to my political points of view and my opinions of different political leaders. So we're, we're gonna stick we're going to stick to Team Rubicon for this conversation sure. uh, due, due to that shyness, Jay, due to of that. Of course, I know. And in, in, inhibitions that I have personally. Um, what difficulties do veterans have transitioning back into civilian life? How, how, how do you address those issues? Yeah, well, you know, I, it's, uh, it's, a, it's an important topic for me. Uh, you know, there is a, a an epidemic within the veteran space that is manifesting itself in the form of uh, the highest suicide rate of nearly any demographic in the country. Uh, my unit has lost more men to suicide than we lost the enemy overseas and understand that we served at the height of both wars and lost a lot of guys overseas. So it's tragic that we've lost more here at home to their own hand. When I think about what the, the root cause of that is, you know, I, I don't focus on things like post-traumatic stress. I focus on things like the loss of purpose that veterans encounter when they take off the uniform for the last time. I think about that loss of community that they, they encounter when they, when they leave that military base for the last time. And ironically, you know, we were just talking about, you know, the threats to the Republic. I think what we saw unfold on January 6th at the Capitol and in our subsequent understanding of just how many military were, veterans in, were involved in that insurrection and are involved in right-wing extremist groups like the Oath Keepers, the Three Percenters, the Proud Boys, that military involvement, I believe, is also rooted in that loss of purpose and that desire for community. And so Team Rubicon, we give those veterans a new mission. We restore that purpose and that community for them. But if you haven't discovered Team Rubicon, there's an appeal and an allure to an extremist group 
that gives you purpose, this purpose to fight and defend democracy as you see it, to be a part of something that, you know, is tight knit. And, and of course, that's a tragic application of purpose, uh, but it's exactly what we're seeing. Well, you know, listen, I mean, the, I mean, this is, again, this is my experience. When you're happy in your life and good things are happening to you and you feel aspirational where you can achieve some of your dreams, maybe some of it is related to your disposable income, maybe some of it is just related to the holistic parts of your life, you seem less engaged in issues like that. Uh, but when you're returning home from war and you are, as you pointed out, disengaged from your team or your battalion or your group, uh, and the adrenaline is down and the trauma or the remember memory of what happened is up, that's a recipe for a disaster. Is that fair to say, Jake? Yeah, I, I think it is fair to say. And you know, there's a challenge in processing those things. And I think one of the things that we've seen at Team Rubicon is, you know, we send these men and women into disaster zones. And in a way, you know, some people think, oh, well, that must trigger those traumatic experiences. And, you know, has that happened? Yeah, I mean, we've seen people who fail to cope with the, the scenes of a disaster zone. But more often than not, what it does is it provides people perspective. Because what happens for many military veterans is they assume that the veteran community, the military community has a monopoly on trauma. And of course, we know that's not the case. People experience trauma in their childhood. They experience trauma in their marriages. They experience trauma in you know, all sorts of things. And when these veterans see these, the survivors of these crises and these disasters, and they see you know, the loss of life, or they see you know, the loss of property, they realize that trauma and human suffering is universal. And it helps provide perspective for them that aids in their ability to cope and heal. I, you know, and I, I think it's, it, I think it's fascinating. One of the things I want to applaud you for is raising the awareness of all this. Uh, one of my uncles who I'm actually named after my uncle, Anthony was in Normandy beach um, mm. uh, on D-Day uh, survived that was subsequently wounded when he came back you know, the, that generation was somewhat quiet about it. I think he never really recovered from the war and lived with post-traumatic stress his entire life. And so tell us what you're doing at Team Rubicon to make those issues more aware. Obviously, you want family members to be more aware of these things and making it acceptable. Uh, in the case of my uncle, it wasn't acceptable for him to talk about it culturally. Yeah. You've done an amazing job of making it acceptable. Tell us steps that you've taken. Tell us things that you've been doing to make that happen. Yeah, I think that's a, it's a great question. Um, we have certainly tried to provide a space for veterans to be uh, safe, to feel safe about being open about their experiences, right? And so, you know, one of the amazing things about hard work, you know, toiling together alongside people, literally under the sun, sweating your ass off, breaking your back every day, which is what happens in these disaster zones, is it's got this unbe unbelievable ability to bring people together and develop this inherent trust and sense of safety, psychological safety alongside these people who were just strangers two days before. And, you know, we're very deliberate in providing people opportunities at the end of those days to, to share and open up about their experience. It might be their experience on that particular disaster response mission. It could be their experience from Iraq or Afghanistan, you know, years or decades before. And in some cases, one of the, I mean, one of the fastest growing demographics that we have as a volunteer in Team Rubicon are Vietnam veterans. And it's really amazing to your point to see these men, mostly, in, you know, they're almost exclusively men, um, 
process the trauma of their wartime experience for the first time in 50 years, right? And, 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 and part of it is because they now have idle minds, right? They, they came home, they had careers, they're now leaving their careers and they're retiring. And now suddenly they, they don't have anything to stay busy. And they realize that, oh my God, in the quietness of this retirement, I have to, for the first time, really think about what happened in, you know, Danang or Quezon or any of the battles that I fought. And so that's been really powerful to observe. So I want to talk about your book, uh, Once a Warrior, How One Veteran Found a New Mission Closer to Home. Uh, it's interesting is, you know, how, how business executives learn from the experience of military leaders like you to improve their companies. You incorporate elements of that in the book. You obviously told the story that you're you're telling right now. For soft viewers and salt listeners that haven't read the book yet, why should they read this book and what will they get out of it? Well, I, I would hope that there's a couple of motivations, right? On, on the first, on the one hand, um, you know, this is a book about, this is a great American story, right? This isn't just, it, it's a memoir, but it's not just my story. It's my story of going to war and coming home, but this is really indicative of the story of 3 million men and women who've served overseas and are coming back and have the opportunity to serve their community and their country in new ways. And that's, and that's you know, the, the story of Team Rubicon. It's also the story of how to process trauma. I mean, going back to your earlier question, um, you know, I lost my best friend and my sniper partner to suicide in 2011. And it was a, I mean, it was a tragedy in all the ways that your viewers right now could imagine. It took me years, years to process his death and to forgive myself for his death. Um, but, you know, at the other hand, on the other side of the coin, one of the people that reviewed the book was Chris Saka, you know, a, a fairly well-known angel investor. And his review was, you know how the best business books aren't business books? This is that book. You know, because this is really also the story of how I scaled one of the fastest growing nonprofits in America in the shadow of the Great Recession, overcoming all of the natural challenges you can imagine building an organization that responds to disasters. I mean, there's there's a lot of uncertainty when it comes to building out a strategic plan when you're, the nature of your business is responding to things you cannot predict. So it's, you know, there are plenty of leadership lessons throughout it um, that people can can pick up. Well, Chris is a, uh, a leading innovator. Uh, I actually met him at Richard Brantz's house in the Virgin Islands, which is a trip that I'm going to encourage you to take at some point. <laughs> well, make that introduction for me. I will. Oh, John, remind me to do that. Um, so how can people support Team Rubicon? Where do they go um, to support your missions and to help you with the veterans that you're helping? Well, we're easy to find. Um, you know, our website, teamrubiconusa.org, um, across any of the social media platforms. Um, you know, we have a big voice. Um, you know, how can people help? Uh, you know, there's a dozen things more important to us than money, but they all cost money. We're a nonprofit organization that runs entirely on philanthropy and we operate at a large scale. You know, we run in a $50 million annual operating budget. Uh, we have to raise every single year to assist these communities that would otherwise be forgotten in the aftermath of these storms. But beyond that, I imagine many of your viewers, uh, you know, they, they know someone in their life that could find value in the work that we do. Uh, we've got 100, nearly 150,000 volunteers, but I can tell you, you know, we're a couple hundred thousand short of where we need to be in order to, to continue to meet the need that we see across the country and around the world. So, you know, it, whether it's that niece or that nephew, uh, you know, the cousin, the friend, the coworker, 
that you know maybe served overseas in any war who might just be looking for that little extra something in their life. Uh, and even if that person's not a military veteran, you know, we'll, we'll take anybody, we'll give them the training that they need and we'll give them the opportunity to be, be of service to, to their country. So I think that's something I really want to emphasize to people. It's not just for military veterans. And I, I want to test the hypothesis on you and get your reaction to it. Uh, the World War II generation, when you think about the draft and the inclusion of so many families in the military experience. And then you had this shared military experience, whether you're from New York or California, Dakota, Texas, mm-hmm. uh, once you were in the army or the Marines, you could then have that bonding experience. Where were you? What battalion or division did you serve in, et cetera? Uh, and then when we came out of that war, as a result of all of that military training, there was a level of civic virtue in the society that I think helped to transform the post-World War II society. Mm-hmm. Today, Jake, it's, you tell me, is it one and a half to 3% of our country is somehow tied to the nation's military. Yeah. And so I'm wondering out loud, uh, do we need to do more from a civic virtue perspective? Maybe the volunteer army is the right thing for the United States at this point, but do we need more compulsory service from our men and women the way the state of Israel does or the way other people think about this to tie us together more closely and to make our union more perfect? What, what's your reaction to that? I mean, 100% agree. And there are multiple reasons why this is important. One, you know, you look at the the state of our public discourse today, the inability of the factions across America to even understand or want to understand one another. Ultimately, what we lack today is empathy and compassion for our fellow Americans who have a different lot in life than we do. You can't have empathy or compassion for someone if you don't understand their perspective, right? And you can't get their perspective if you've never left your bubble. Service helps transcend those bubbles. It it, it brings people together in what is the the most perfect melting pot that America ever created, which which was, I believe, military service. And we've seen that play out. So there's that issue. But this is actually, I believe, actually... a, a slow burning national security threat. We have a, an all volunteer force today that has largely become a family affair. Um, the vast majority of people who are joining the military today are coming from a lineage of military veterans. The challenge is that the military veterans of today, poll after poll after poll, are, are stating that they are not going to encourage their children to join the military. So we're actually gonna have a pretty large recruiting crisis that's looming on the horizon. Um, but you know that is coupled with the fact that when you create almost this warrior caste where 1% of uh, Americans serve becomes a family affair, they become disconnected from the rest of society. And it becomes much easier for the rest of our Republic to send those men and women off to war because there's no cost to the rest of America. It's not their son or daughter that they're sending off. And so we find ourselves embroiled in conflicts that are uh, poorly planned, no exit strategy. And we find ourselves there for decades upon decades. And that's, you know, that's not sustainable. All right, well, I have to, I have to turn it over to the resident millennial, Jake. Otherwise, I can't get the ratings, you know, because I'm, 
I'm like this aging white male. I'm, you know, heading deep into my middle age now. As opposed to me. I don't don't know if I have the attraction of these like young, youthful looking millennials. I have to turn it over to this guy. It's a little horrifying for me. Okay. So, but go ahead, Darcy. I know you're dying to ask Jake all these brilliant scintillating questions. You know, Jake, you know, what's also horrifying since you're cheaper than my therapist, this guy gets fan mail. I mean, it's human <laughs> shit. It's like unbelievable. All right, go it's ahead. A big point of, it's a big point of contention, Jake. I got, I think, one email that somebody said that I did a good job and it, it hurt Anthony's ego, you know. Um, <laughs> it, was, it was bruising. It was bruising, okay? There's no euphemism to describe the pain. But go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, I, I think your point about uh, service and bipartisanship is very well taken, Jake. And I frequently give my friend Rye Barcott a shout out on here for his organization with honor, who you're likely familiar with. It's a pact that they basically encourage military members to run for office. And uh, while giving them funding, they, they force those candidates to sign uh, basically non-binding contracts to commit to bipartisanship. And, and naturally, there's just more of a camaraderie among those members across the aisle. Uh, in terms of solving problems as opposed to looking things through a partisan lens. So uh, I think that point is extremely well taken. And we love what you do at Team Rubicon and what Rye is doing at With Honor. And and hopefully uh, every time we shout out these organizations, hopefully members of our community uh, step up and and contribute to the cause. But I want to ask you about the COVID-19 pandemic. So you guys have responded to a variety of different types of uh, humanitarian crises how has the COVID-19 pandemic been unique and what does your response look like at Team Rubicon? Well, I mean, this has been unique um, in, in, I mean, immeasurable ways, right? Uh, too many to enumerate, but uh, to put it in perspective, um, you know, back in March or April, when this thing was first gripping the U.S., it was the first time in American history that all 50 states plus U.S. territories uh, were under an emergency declaration simultaneously. So this, I mean, it was simply the scale, the breadth and depth of this crisis that was that was nearly impossible to overcome. Um, our organization pivoted very aggressively and early into the fight. You know, we we said early that we didn't have a playbook for a global pandemic, but we had the players. Going back to our philosophy on you know our our human capital strategy is based on recruiting these men and women who do chaos you know for their day job. And so we, over the last year, have done a variety of things. We surged over 10,000 volunteers into food banks across the country to help sustain their operations in the face of growing food insecurity. Uh, Perhaps on the more complex side, we deployed uh, hundreds of medics into Navajo Nation, where over the last uh, several months, we've treated 5,000 COVID-positive patients. We established dozens of mobile testing sites for COVID-19 throughout the Western U.S., uh, we managed all the collection and distribution of personal protective equipment for the city of Chicago. I mean, it was just over over 330 American communities requested our assistance uh, in the aftermath of COVID, and we responded to, to over 300 of them uh, with, with operations. Um, right now, our entire focus is on getting our organization into uh, the vaccine space. And we've been operating a dozen pilot programs in uh, states across the U.S. supporting uh, the logistics and wraparound services that are necessary for effective vaccination programs and delivery. And we anticipate rolling that out and expanding it and scaling it to several hundred um, communities here in the coming months. And so we're, we're actively raising a fund right now to, to do that. Um, you know, might as well make the pitch now. We're raising there you an, go. an initial $5 million to get it off the ground and $30 million to take it to scale and sustain it through October which is really the, the point at which we'll think 
that our chief medical officer believes uh, will hit the uh, point of community immunity. Um, of course, all of that is dictated by pace. So, so, and people can find information to donate to that fund on your website. People can find out about that uh, on our website. We're about to uh, launch a coalition, a Veterans Coalition for Vaccination, uh, which will bring about six other organizations focused on veterans in under a tent that will be we will be managing. Um, of course, they can reach out to you with some fan mail and you can put them directly in contact with me and I'd love to have a conversation with them about it. All right. I would ask you how we could have improved our response to the pandemic at a federal level, but I think that would take uh, you know an extra 30, 45 minutes for us to get into. Uh, I got if we had put Jake I, Wood in charge- talk, talk, talk about needing a therapist. I need to talk to a therapist about that myself, but yes, we All right. would take much time. <laughs> but we will leave it there. Uh, Thank you so much, Jake, for joining us. We always love having Team Rubicon affiliated with SALT. It's a tremendous organization, and, and uh, you have scaled it in a way that's extremely impressive, and you're really solving two problems. You're addressing these critical issues around the world and in the United States while also helping uh, military veterans transition back into civilian life and cope with those mental health uh, issues and loss of purpose that you talked about. So thank you so much for everything you do. Yeah, John, Anthony, thank you for having me. It's great hey, to reconnect. Just tell us one more time where we can send money. Where, where do people go? Yeah, uh, please visit us at teamrubiconusa.org. You can find out all the information right there. Love to have you. Okay. And buy his book, too. It's a, it's a tremendous memoir. Uh, Once a Warrior is the name of it. It's a tremendous memoir talking about a lot of these issues that we spoke about today, that loss of purpose, and how veterans are uniquely suited to, to solve these humanitarian crises uh, that exist around the world. So we encourage you to buy that book. Thanks again, Jake. Jake, Jake, I hope to see you at a SALT event soon, okay? We'll get you. We'll, I check my mailbox every day for the invite, we're Anthony. Gonna gear, we're going to gear up the fundraising at a SALT event soon. We appreciate all your your work. You're, you're a great American patriot. Thank you for all the things you're doing for our country and the world. Thank you, Anthony. And thank you, everybody who tuned into today's SALT Talk, especially if you are now going to the Team Rubicon website and donating to the cause. Just a reminder, if you missed any part of this episode or any of our previous episodes, you can see the entire SALT Talks archive at salt.org backslash talks backslash archive. And you can sign up for all of our upcoming talks at salt.org backslash talks. A reminder, please follow us on social media and tell your friends about SALT Talks. We love growing our community and spreading the word about great causes like Team Rubicon. We're on Twitter. We're on Facebook. We're but on don't Instagram. Don't send any LinkedIn. more fan mail to John Dorsey. Send all fan, fan mail to... Keep I'm going. not going to read your email out, but send send all your uh, fan mail to Anthony's email so he gets it uh, and can treasure it. Um, but on behalf of the entire SALT team and Anthony, this is John Darcy signing off from SALT Talks for today. We'll see you back here again tomorrow.